I want us to go together to the Gospel of John tonight, and specifically chapter 5. I think would be a good one. It's here that we find quite an amazing account of Jesus healing a man. And it's also the setting through which I believe he wants to convey a specific message to each of us here tonight. And so as you guys are making your way there, I know that I just prayed, but I would like to have the opportunity to pray for us one more time before we get immersed into this word that God has for us. So let's pray again, just one more time. God, I pray once again that you would have complete freedom to do whatever it is you desire to do upon our hearts tonight. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bind Satan and his demons from this place, that he would not have an opportunity to grab a foothold here tonight, that he would not be able to disrupt or to distract from what you desire to do in this place tonight. God, as I stand before these men and these women, my words will only go so far, but your words will penetrate, God. So I pray tonight that you would do that which only you could do, and that you would protect them from anything that might be my opinion, and instead fill this room with your truth tonight. God, we're trusting you for transformed hearts and lives as a result of the process. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, God's word says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Tonight I want to speak to you from the subject of nothing better. Better, B-E-D-D-E-R, better, which I think is how most of us in the South say it anyway. Nothing better. My wife has told me on a few different occasions that our bed is her favorite place in the house. Hey. I'm like, yes, ma'am. It most certainly is. I agree with you. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, she has told me that on several occasions we'll be laying in the bed at night and she'll say, my, our bed is my favorite place in this house. And you know, I couldn't agree more with her because at times, and I think most of you would agree, at times there's just nothing better than after a long, hard day at work, you go home, you take a shower, you lay down in that nice, soft bed, you pull those covers up all the way underneath your chin, and you nestle down on your nice, plush pillow and just drift off into dreamland. Sometimes there's just nothing better than laying down in your bed at night, especially in the wintertime, right? When it's cold outside, like it, hopefully cold weather is not far. I'm sorry, I walked outside the other day. It was so hot, and I couldn't help but thank God. This must have been what it felt like in Sodom and Gomorrah, the day that you rained fire down from heaven and completely wiped that place off the earth. There's nothing better than being in the wintertime, and it's cold outside, and you jump in your bed, 
and you just pull the covers up around you and you drift off to sleep. Jesus had made an appearance in Jerusalem to participate in, as John tells us, a feast of the Jews. And we don't know exactly what feast it was. The Jews had a good many of them that they celebrated with the purpose of commemorating the things that God had done in their past. So kind of like we have holidays that we celebrate in the modern day, the Jews had different feasts. They had different festivals that God had actually put in place for them to celebrate, to commemorate all the things that God had done in their past. So Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate one of these feasts, and we don't know which one it was, but I can tell you this. Jesus didn't make the trip just for the sake of upholding religious tradition. It wasn't a potluck that he was concerned with. It was a person. And upon arrival, he enters in a place that has two pools of water and what John describes as a multitude of invalids laying around him. So picture the scene with me. Jesus walks into this place. John describes the scene as the place having two separate pools of water that were adjacent to each other and a multitude of invalids, a multitude of paralyzed people, of lame people, of sick people that were laying around these pools. And there would have been so many of them there that you could have hardly walked through the crowd without stepping on somebody. And they called this place Bethesda which, ironically enough, means house of mercy or house of grace. And an extraordinary thing would happen in this place from time to time. The waters of these pools would be stirred, and nobody knows exactly how it happens. If you notice in your Bible, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, I'm not the smartest of individuals, but I'm pretty sure that 4 comes after 3, and before five. So what happened to that verse? Well, most scholars believe that the earliest manuscripts didn't include one detail in which some manuscripts did that say that an angel would come down, stir the waters, and when they would be stirred, whoever was the first one to jump into the pool would be healed of whatever infirmities that they had. We don't know exactly how it went down, but obviously there was something extraordinary that happened in this place. Obviously something about that pool when the waters got to turning had healing effects about them. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been multitudes of people laying there for no reason whatsoever. Somebody along the way had jumped into that pool when the waters were stirred and came out healed. Word spread, all these people had showed up trying to be the first one to get into the water when it was stirred. And as Jesus walks into this place, he encounters a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, that would have been an extraordinary thing as well for somebody in this day and age to live for 38 years with this kind of infirmity. And I just want to point out the obvious for a second. If healing in this instance is dependent upon a foot race to the pool, being paralyzed would put you at a great disadvantage. Jesus walks into this place, a place, by the way, that most everyone else would have avoided, but to which Jesus was attracted. And I want you to know that it's those ugly, sick, gross, lame places of your life that you try to avoid at all costs that attracts Jesus to your life. Why? 
because he has the power to do something about it. And so this place called Bethesda that so many other people would have walked by and not went into because they know what's in there. They're not going in there with all those sick people. They're not going, and, and there's details in scriptures, guys, that, that we don't necessarily have, but you can assume are there. I just imagine that some of these people were very, very sick. And after laying there for so long, you eventually develop bed sores. And after a while, that would get infected. Just imagine the smell probably in this place. Nobody's walking in there. Everybody else avoids it, but Jesus is attracted to it. And so Jesus walks in and he sees this man lying there and he's keenly aware of this man's presence. So many other people walk by this place on a daily basis and never paid any attention to the people that were in this place, but Jesus walks in and looks right at this man. Just the intentionality of Jesus' eyes looking at this man speaks to his great love and grace for humanity. The fact that the creator God of the universe would look intentionally at an individual speaks to his grace and his love for each and every one of us. The fact that God in his grace would look down from heaven and look at each and every one of us speaks to his grace and his love for humanity. And just like Jesus saw this man, he sees each and every one of you sitting here tonight as well. What's it like to know that the almighty creator of the universe is keenly aware of your presence? I think it's quite an impressive thing. I think it's quite an impressive truth to know that I mean enough to the God of the universe that he is aware of me. And he is aware of you as well. But his seeing points to an even greater truth. And that's the truth that he not only sees you, but he also knows you. Jesus doesn't just see. He also knows. The text tells us that Jesus saw this man and knew he had been there for a long time. Go back and look at verse 6 with me. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus saw this man. But he also knew that he had been there for a long time. Jesus knew the situation and the circumstances of this man's 38-year-long dilemma. He knew that he had been there for a long time. He knew that he had been waiting for a long time to be the first one into the pool. I promise you that Jesus, when he looked at this man, he knew his pain. He knew his despair. He knew the hopelessness that he felt. He knew the loneliness that he felt. In this place, he knew the sorrow of this man. My question is, where was this man's family? Did his, fun, did his own family not even care enough to sit there with him for a little bit and wait for the pools to be stirred so they could pick him up and set him in the water? This man was lonely. Jesus felt his loneliness. Jesus felt his sorrow. And men and women, the same as True for each and every one of us here tonight, Jesus not only sees you, He knows the situation and the circumstances of your life. He knows that you've been crippled by the divorce of your parents. He knows that you've been paralyzed by depression and suicidal 
thoughts. He knows that you're lame from that eating disorder that you've battled for so long. He knows that you're numb because in a weak moment you didn't wait for marriage. He knows the depths of your sin and your mistakes. He knows the ways in which we daily fall short of His glory. There is not a situation or circumstance represented in this place tonight that He doesn't know. And regardless of what it may be, His grace and His mercy and His love continues in pursuit of us. I thought somebody might at least get a tad bit excited to know that regardless of what sin, regardless of what mistakes that I have, regardless of what situation or circumstance that I have been battling in this life, God in His grace and His love continues to pursue after me. And he makes it evident. God's pursuit of you is not done in private. He makes it evident. He makes it evident here in the life of this man. And you can see it because the way in which he makes his pursuit of this guy in his love and his grace and his mercy for him, he makes it evident. Why? Because he makes an offer to him. He makes an offer to him. Did you notice what he said? Look at, look at verse 6. The very last part of, of verse 6. He sees this man. He knows his situation. He knows his circumstance. He knows he's been here for a long time. And then he makes an offer that reveals his grace and his love and his mercy and his intentionality and his pursuit of this man. He says, do you want to be healed? <laughs> oh, it's kind of a funny question that Jesus would ask this guy, don't you think? No, Captain Obvious. He's been laying here for as long as I can remember, trying to get into the pool. Not because I won't be healed. I just want to take a swim, Jesus. He, he, he asked him, do you want to be healed? Look at somebody beside you and tell them I do. Look at somebody beside you and tell them I do. Now by the power vested in me by the state of Alabama. I'm just... <laughs> Sorry, I got my messages crossed up for a second. In all honesty, though, you would think that as Jesus asked this man a direct question, the man would give him a direct response, but he doesn't. Look at verse 7. At the end of verse 6, Jesus asked the man, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Instead, this man begins to give Jesus a reason why he hasn't been healed yet. Jesus asked, Do you want to be healed? This man gives a reason of why he hasn't been healed yet. Sir, Every time I try to go down to the pool to get into the water, somebody else beats me there. Jesus didn't ask him, why haven't you been healed yet? He asked him, do you want to be healed? And this man proceeds to give Jesus a reason of why he hasn't. And before we think too harshly about him, for his seemingly silly response, I want us to remember the state that this man had been in for so long. Imagine, he is in a room full of what the Bible describes as invalids. And he would have had a bed, he would have had a mat, 
something similar to this. Now, I don't know the state of his paralysis. I don't know how far it went down. But obviously, he has some mobility because he let us know that while he tries to get in the water, somebody else beat him there. So all I know is, is that he has at least some functionality in his upper body because he can make it to a certain level. But just imagine the state of this man. Day in and day out, he lays on this uncomfortable mat on the cold, hard ground, surrounded by sick people waiting for those waters to be stirred. And then finally, finally, he begins to hear the waters slosh around in the tank. And as soon as he hears that noise, he begins to crawl his way down the steps to try to get there. Only to be beat by somebody doing a cannonball into the pool in front of him. And then imagine after he's done, he turns back around. He has to fix his bed. And he's struggling and nobody's there to help him. And he pulls himself back up to where he was. Imagine the sores on his arms, on his elbows, as they scrape across the ground time and time again while he's trying to make his way to the pool. And he sits there day in and day out and he waits for it to happen again. And he's waking up by this noise in the night of the waters being stirred again. And, and once again he gets filled with hope. And so he, he crawls down the steps again all the way to the bottom only to have somebody beat him once more. Can you not imagine the disparity of this guy? I have to imagine after so many times of failure, he finally got to the bottom and he just lays his head down and begins to sob and weep thinking there's no way this is ever going to happen. Every time I try. Every time I make an attempt, I, I do the best that I can and I don't have anybody in my corner. I don't have anybody that will pick me up and, and carry me the rest of the way. And I've tried time and time again, and I'm tired. And I can't do this anymore, God. Just, just, why won't you just take me? Why won't you just put me out of my misery? And he gives Jesus this response of the reason in which why. He hasn't been healed at this point. When you understand his situation a little better, it helps you to understand his response because what I'm trying to tell you is that a hopeless heart will most often yield a hopeless response. It's not that I don't want to be healed. It's that I can't get myself to the place where I can be. But here's where he made a mistake. When Jesus offers healing, a simple yes is all that he is looking for in that moment. Some of us, I'm afraid, have delayed healing in areas of our lives because we want to keep giving Jesus reasons instead of receptivity. Do you want to be healed? Well, yes, Jesus, but I need to straighten my life up 
first. Do you want to be healed? Well, yes, Jesus, but I really need to quit the party scene beforehand. No, do you want to be healed? Well, yes, Jesus, I do, but I need to, I need to get a little bit better with my church attendance. I need to get a little more consistent with being in your house. No, do you want to be healed? Well, yes, Jesus, I do, but I need to dig myself out of this depression that I've been in for so long. No, do you want to be healed? Well, yes, Jesus, I do, but I need to ax this addiction that I've had in my life for so long. Stop it. Stop it. You don't have the power to bring the kind of healing in your life that you need. This man is a perfect example of not having the ability within his own power to bring healing into his life. But that's the very thing that attracts a healer. It's when he spots somebody that begins to realize that they don't have the power within themselves to bring the kind of healing into their life that they need. That's the kind of person that needs a healer. And then look at what Jesus does next. Verse 8. After this man gives him a reason why he hasn't been healed yet, Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Jesus tells this paralyzed man of 38 years to get up and walk. What an audacious, seemingly insulting thing for Jesus to say to a paralyzed man. Don't get me wrong but I don't think that any of you would walk up to somebody in a wheelchair, to someone that you knew to be paralyzed, and say, get up! What are you doing? You just, you just happy? Rolling around in that thing? Just get up! It's absurd! It's an audacious claim that Jesus makes to this man, but this man without question stands up and I'm like God why would he do that why would he do, why would he get up and you're like well duh Trey it's obvious right he's talking to Jesus but he didn't know he was talking to Jesus you hadn't seen this yet have you look at verse 13 you got to skip down a few verses and I know it's, it's kind of a, a trick question well Trey you didn't read that part of the scriptures Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. So yeah, it would make sense if this guy would have known that this was Jesus. He probably heard the stories of all the miraculous healings and all the things that Jesus had done for people. It would have made sense if he would have known who Jesus was. And when he said, get up, to say, okay, Jesus, I'll get up because I know you've healed other people. But he didn't know who he was talking to. So what possessed this man to get up at the words of some stranger who wandered into this place full of sick people and told him to get up. I can't prove it. But I believe it's because Jesus had the audacity to say to this man what no one had ever said to him before. 
How many people would have walked into this place and looked at a paralyzed man and told him to get up? Jesus had the audacity, Jesus had the boldness to take such a risk as to say something to somebody that they had never heard before. Could it be that Jesus has such an audacious message of love and grace to speak into your life what no one else ever has tonight? Could it be that he would be so bold to tell you to get up out of your bed of depression or disorder? Could it be that he would be so audacious to tell you to get up out of your bed of anxiety or addiction? Could it be that he would be so bold and so audacious to tell you to get up from your bed of immorality, your bed of guilt, your bed of shame, to tell you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, but to do all those things with this purpose, to show you his love and his grace in his pursuit of you? Would he speak something so bold into our lives here tonight? To say something to each and every one of you that nobody else has the guts to speak into your life. Do you want to be healed? Then get up. And as if telling him to get up wasn't bold enough, Man, it's no wonder that people would turn around and stop following Jesus. He was crazy. Crazy in some of the things that he said. As if telling him to get up wasn't bold enough, he, he, he also tells him to take his bed with him. Get up. Take up. Take your bed and go home. What could possibly be the point in that? What could possibly be the point in Jesus telling this guy after he gets up, now take up that thing you've been laying on for so long, for 38 years, paralyzed. Take that thing and go. What would be the point in that? Because now that he has been healed, the thing that once represented his trial, now is a part of his testimony. Now that he's been healed, the thing that once represented his suffering is now part of his story. Now that he's been healed, the thing that was once an object of hurt is now a reminder of healing. Get up. Take up your bed. And go. Imagine this guy as he walks out of that place that day with his bed underneath his arm. And he bursts out of the scene. What I didn't read in the passage is that he bumped into a bunch of religious people after this happened. And he's, he's walking through the crowd. He's carrying his bed. For 38 years he hadn't walked, Carly. And he's walking by all the religious people. Excuse me. Excuse me. He's bumping into them with his bed. Excuse me. Bumping into them with his bed. Bumping into his bed. And they're like, what are you doing, man? I'm taking my bed home. But I thought you were that guy that was paralyzed. Yeah, I was was now this used to be me let me tell you about how I was healed let me tell you my story now my story is not of one of laying in this place called Bethesda hoping I could jump in the pool one day my story is one of how a man named Jesus walked into my life one day 
And I put my faith in his words to tell me to get up, and I got up. Hey, man, watch where you're going with your bed. My bad. My, you're right, my bad. I'm sorry. Can I tell you a cool story, though? I used to lay on this thing for 38 years. But now I can walk. This thing used to be an object of my hurt. Well, why do you still carry it around with you? Because it reminds me of my healing. I think tonight I think God's calling people to healing tonight to get off the bed and as a matter of fact don't just get off of it take it with you when you go verse 14 real quick after the religious people had questioned about how he was healed Jesus said, or the man said, well, I don't know, because Jesus had snuck in the crowd, and he wasn't real sure what had happened. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I have to think that this guy in his mind thought when Jesus said that well I'm not worried about that because I know now there's nothing better than you Jesus there's nothing better men and women than Jesus there's nothing better than his grace there's nothing better than his love there's nothing better than His mercy. There's nothing better than the healing that He can bring into your life. If you'll just put, get up, take up your bed, and go. And go. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for His glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.